Big thanks to our partners Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. What's up, party people? This episode is brought to you by Auth0. Auth0 is a for developers by developers identity platform built for the cloud era. They secure billions of logins every year. Identity is the front door of every user interaction and the login experience can make or break a user's first impression. Identity and authentication is never a set it and forget it thing. That means when teams decide to roll their own, they are taking on the full burden of constantly evolving industry standards, customer expectations, and data breach tactics. And they often don't have the time, expertise, or resources to meet those needs. This takes away from critical time needed to innovate and to improve their core product. Auth0 has solved this problem for every developer to give teams their time back and to make applications more secure. With Auth0 security, compliance, and industry standards, they're always up to date. Developers are free to provide the login options their users want with the security their application demands. Make login Auth0's problem not yours. Learn more at Auth0.com. Again, Auth0.com. This is JS Party, your weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record the show live each and every Thursday. You can join in on the hijinks at youtube.com slash changelog and chat along with us in our community slack, jsparty.fm slash community. Oh, and follow the show on Twitter. We're at jspartyfm. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Hope you're doing well. We are super excited about today's show. We're going to be talking about a really important topic for software engineers who want to be happy at work. We're joined by my f- lovely former coworker, uh, Liana Leahy. Actually, Liana, I always mispronounce your name. How do I appropriately pronounce your last name? The family says Leahy, but it's an Irish name and it should be pronounced Leahy. So we pronounce it wrong, to, you know, too. So what else? All right. Well, Liana Leahy, Leahy, Liana Awesome. That could be your last name because I think you're awesome. And so Liana is a product manager um, at Indigo. And on the panel with me today is K-Ball. Welcome, K-Ball. Hello, hello. Nobody has trouble pronouncing my last name, though I have had people ask, wait, how do you spell that? I'm like, ball, like a basketball, like B-A-L-L. But people still struggle. Oh, that's so funny. I I mean, I would never have guessed that you have issues with your name because you you have like a really common first name, Kevin, and then your last name is literally like used in the English language. <laughs> so <laughs> People just can't believe it could be that easy. Yeah, right. Exactly. Those people might be engineers, right? Uh, K-Ball, they're like, what's the twist? <laughs> We're familiar with engineers, right? You want to put all the fun complexity in there. We'll build our static site with react and <laughs> oh my god i feel attacked anyways no i so 
So Liana, we're so excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're going to be talking about your transition from engineering into products. You were like this principal level senior engineer that made the pivot into product many, many years ago. And I think even before that, at some point you were singing Broadway, which like, I really want to hear that story. So in your own words, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> Sure, sure. So, I mean, to start with the Broadway spin, um, I grew up in a family where my father was uh, in music. He was a jazz pianist and used to gig in Manhattan and the Catskills and stuff. And my mom was a very fast typist. And so she ended up becoming a key punch operator in the 80s. And she was debugging mainframes and stuff like that. So, I mean, only naturally did I major in both computers and musical theater. So I always had a, the idea that, I mean, my dad had a day job and gigged on the side. So I just always figured that that was what my life would be. So I was doing computers, doing computers, what we said in the day. <laughs> I was programming uh, in Manhattan during the day and then auditioning right before work because you got up at five in the morning to go to a cattle call, go to work, and then like be at rehearsals and stuff at night. So it was a fun time. I loved it. I was doing um, off-Broadway. I did a regional tour good time. And then I turned 30 and went, okay, thanks. I'm done with that. I want to actually settle down and have a family and a real life. So then I, I started to work in computers in earnest. So that meant transitioning from desktop development, because I'm dating myself, to um, to web technologies. Uh, spent a lot of time doing that. And yeah, then I was doing Ruby on Rails for a number of years. And that was really great. Um, but yeah, I've been doing software for many years before I actually landed a company that a startup that was had formalized the role of product manager. I'd never seen that before. I was like, oh, what what is this? This is cool. This is my job. I've been doing this all along. I had no idea. Like I, I had always been that person who was the glue. I think we, there's a couple um, blog posts about being the glue person, that one who like likes to be the liaison between development and the business and, and talking to everybody. I was a very social person. So I'd always been that person who was writing requirements and trying to understand what the business really wanted. It's like, really, you want this? Are you sure? It's going to take a long time. If we just did this little tweak, it'd be a lot faster. Oh, awesome. Right. You know, so it was just a natural progression into product management. So when I reached out to my folks at the company that I'd really like to make this transition. They were like, great, mentored me. And then um, I was on the path. But we can talk more about that as we go along. Working in computers or with computers is such a great day job, right? Like it's way better than waiting tables. I know so many people who are in performing arts of some form or another that use software as like, that's how I pay the bills. And then I do my thing. Yeah, I was really, at, at the time, I mean, it, there wasn't a lot of computer scientists in theater. I'm sure there's more now. and But back then, it was just me. And it was great. I could pay for my acting classes and my headshots. And being an actor is expensive. So it was very helpful. I, for one, would really like to see that be normalized, where tech is a job and not something that's like your full-time passion, right? Because I feel like people have the opposite mentality, where they feel like in order to be successful in tech, you have to be this like super passionate engineer and you have to live and breathe this stuff. And I feel like it's perfectly fine to normalize it and say, hey, this is a lucrative industry and a high-paying job. And, you know, you can use this to help fund your maybe perhaps less lucrative passion, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah, that, that's... <laughs> You know, 
I love computer science. I miss programming. I I love it. I wouldn't say that I wasn't passionate mm-hmm. or I'm not passionate about it. I just have multiple passions. Right. Exactly. That's exactly what it is, I think, is is making room for multiple passions and this not being the dominant one. So yeah, I've got a pin tweet on that. And speaking of glue person, your whole concept of being a glue person is very true, I think, as a product manager. But I think even just in any engineering org, I feel like there's glue people with many different titles that like are the folks that know where all the bodies are buried and they know who's good at what, you know, they're the ones that can redirect you to the right person and get stuff done. So I'm curious, like what kind of really was the catalyst for you making that formal transition into product? Like when did you realize like this was something that you maybe were more excited about or? Yeah. I mean, I had done software for a while and I guess I, I just needed a, a different challenge. And when I saw this role and the way that it was done, I, um, it just seemed exciting to me to formally as to have that as a job, as opposed to just doing it as an engineer, right? Because it does suck up a lot of your time when you're that glue person to spend time, like making those connections and talking to people and understanding the business. It's all valuable work. And I know that a lot of engineers do that today, but when you have someone who's job it is to do that work, it leaves you a free time to actually do, you know, actually do the programming. So that's like where I think product management like has, can help out engineers and is like really important. And I just hadn't, I just hadn't seen that before. I was, uh, it was always on the, the tech staff to try and figure out what is it that the business wanted. And they didn't really tell me why they wanted something. They were always handing us solutions, like go build this thing. And we would just kind of like, okay, just kind of guess. And then it wouldn't be the right thing. Or it'd be like super waterfall and you spend months like planning something out. And then of course, by the time it was built, they didn't need that thing anymore. It's just not not an awesome way of 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 creating software. So that was why I was being that person who was trying to make those connections because I didn't like build, you know, no one likes building something that no one's going to use, right? I want to build something that's useful, that is going to work and and people are going to be happy with. So that's why I was going to the business going, why am I building this thing? What do you want it for? Who's using this? And asking those types of questions, which are very product management questions. Can we maybe divert a little bit and just kind of flesh out for folks what exactly we mean when we talk about like product manager work, product manager types of things, the product manager role. Because I feel like many engineers have have never worked with a product manager or at least have never worked with a product manager who was actually good at their job and making things easy for the engineering team. Sure. I mean, it's a tough and challenging gig. There's a lot to do. You need to understand your industry and your company. And you need to know your users. I mean, that's number one. Who are your users? And if you're in a company that makes software for everyone, like Facebook, right? Like it gets a little harder. Or I worked at the the MBTA for a while, which everyone rides the T. So who's your user? Like getting to really understand the jobs to be done is one of the frameworks that we use. Like what is it that the user's trying to do? What are they trying to accomplish with your product? And understanding that need and that niche that you're trying to fill with your product, super important. Also, as a PM, you're aligning stakeholders around the vision. So you have to have a real good picture in your mind and be able to communicate that picture of what you're building and not just like that feature, but like the overall, like in a year from now, what is this product going to do and be and and what is like the strategic direction of what it is that you're building and how is that going to help your company? Like why should they invest in building this product? How is that going to help the company move their needles, right? So 
And then you're, you're prioritizing what you need to build. So you've got like a list of features that you know that you need that's on your roadmap. But like, you know, when when does this fit in? How, you know, how do I put that all together? And then you're rallying the team around all of that work. You're prioritizing the product features, capabilities. And then in a lot of cases, some product managers depends on the organization, but you're helping to deliver that feature. So being that person that can help remove roadblocks get people that the, answer the questions that they need and really championing the team and letting them focus on the development work while you're chasing down answering their questions about the feature from commercial teams or operational teams of the business. Yeah, I, that's a really great summary. I, I also feel like being the internal voice of the customer is a big thing for product, right? Like you're always the litmus that's like, hey, I've spent a lot of time getting into our customers' heads, like, you know, engineers, designers, whoever, really, when you want to kind of understand, is this important to our customers? Like, I'm a good litmus for you to, to maybe kind of bounce off ideas with initially, right? And it doesn't mean you're always going to get it right, right? But I think for the most part, I, I always feel like my product managers have always been the folks that are really the advocates for our customers inside the business. And it sucks because sometimes what your customers want isn't also what the business wants to do, right? So I think striking that balance and negotiating with business on like, hey, like, how can we make this work is something I've seen product managers do quite well. And so I'm just curious, like, at what point do you feel like this, our industry being so young, right? So I think K-Ball alluded to it, like maybe some engineers, you know, listening to this podcast haven't even worked too with a product manager directly, right? So this role has kind of birthed out of software getting bigger, and us wanting to create more and more delightful user experiences. What's the kind of tipping point for, for product managers, right? And how do they fit into an org? Is there ever like a time where like a product manager isn't needed? Like, because it's, it's a fairly new-ish role, right? Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I've certainly been the only person developing the software where I was designing everything and trying to figure out what features to build, right? And and doing all of it. Certainly the things that I designed as an engineer were nowhere near as fantastic as the stuff that you have a proper designer work on. And I think it's too far, like for product management, I, especially as an engineer, I didn't understand the economics behind what it was I was building or the why and, or, or the industry really. Cause I've worked in Gosh, almost everything like uh, games and finance, healthcare, agriculture, um, all these different industries. And as a product manager, for an engineer, you don't need to go too deep to understand that industry. You're just building software. You need to go deep on what tech stack mm -hmm. you're working on. But for a product manager, you really need to go deep on that industry and understand that industry inside mm -hmm. and out to give the best user experience, right? To truly be able to understand your users and also understand, like, how do you how do you bring value to this industry that no other competitor has? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think the distinction between, like, technical expertise and domain expertise that's, like, specific to an industry is, like, key, right? And I think that's where maybe you see some teams getting away with the lack of a product manager, like, or a formalized role because because perhaps someone in that organization is playing that domain expert, right? And someone in that organization is saying, hey, I know this, this is what we should be building, engineers, go do it, right? And so I think that's a really good distinction. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what are some of the, like, you mentioned the how and the what, right? So we, we've talked about this a lot in our industry, where like, 
product folks are responsible for the what and engineers are responsible for the how. And that's the clear like line between these two disciplines that have to often work with each other, right? So if you ever want to know, hey, is this my job or someone else's job? You should ask yourself, is this a what or is this a how, right? Has that distinction generally worked? And is it actually still even relevant with super agile organizations and, you know, fast moving projects? Like sometimes as a senior engineer, I'm having to often make that decision that maybe a a product manager would make, right? Because I'm not going to tap my product manager on the shoulder every five minutes. So Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this at the beginning of the call, right? Like it's, I think a lot of it depends on the people and the relationships that you have. So being that I'm a product manager that has come from engineering, I'm the type of PM that is going to help you through that. But I think uh, when you have someone who is uh, maybe more of like an MBA type or someone who has more more of a business standpoint, they're going to approach it a little differently. So I can help you through a little bit of the how, whereas maybe someone with a business background can't, but they will be able to, to flex on those muscles, right? And be able to give you a lot more business strategic stuff. So I think as a, I'm kind of coming around in, in, in a roundabout way, but a product manager has to be good at so many different things, right? You're both you're working with design to create a product, you're working with technology to build it, and then you're working with the business to bring value. And all of those things you have to have some ability to do very well. And at any given time, you can flex on any of these different pieces, and it depends on if you're uh, uh, what is needed in the moment. So when you're working with a tech lead, there might be op- moments where the tech lead ha- is taking on more of that that producty role as they're trying to answer things on the fly and get things done. Especially if you're in an environment that has to get things done really quickly, I don't mind that when an engineer is trying to under you know get it out the door because we are all trying to ship things quickly and iterate on them and learn from that. But at the same time, I think it helps that engineer if you understand very well the user that you're building for and why are you building this feature in the first place and having the context of all the user research if you have the context around it then i think the engineer can make so much better decisions like i trust that that engineers can make better decisions when they understand that and can kind of make those micro decisions liana you said something there that i want to double click in on a little bit which is you mentioned the word why right i think the what is often a collaborative endeavor between product, between maybe the tech leads, maybe the design leads, whoever it might be. But to me, where what sets a really good product manager apart is they always have that context. They always have that why. Why are we doing this? Why are we trying to decide on this what? Once we've decided on the what's, why are we doing it now instead of later? And why are we doing this what instead of that what? All of those different pieces lives somewhere. And it's the product manager that, in my mind, pulls all those pieces together. That's right. I mean, I think that's the vision that I was mentioning earlier. I have to have a vision in my mind that I'm communicating out to everyone multiple times uh, over and over again, right? Like to, so that everyone continues to carry that picture of what we're building and why we're building it. User research is just really a cornerstone of product management. You need to be understanding what's going on with the folks you're building for and why they need that thing. Why is it important? What kind of value does it bring to their life so that you're 
you're building the right thing. And if you can carry that vision to everyone else and let, you know, let them understand where's the user coming from? Um, why, why do they care about this feature? Then those smaller decisions are easier for folks to make. I like to do something called a, a story time at, at another company. We called it a user goal meeting. And it's a meeting before you even solutionize anything, before you create mock-ups or designs, you come to that meeting with a bunch of user research and a problem to solve and you get everyone in the room and when i mean everyone like every stakeholder that's um engineers content writers any medical folks or like stakeholders like folks who uh, that n know about like the industry put them all in a room and share the user research that you have around this problem but let's agree on the problem let's all just agree on like this month we're going to tackle this problem and get agreement there and an understanding with the user research around what is that problem. And then at that point, now we start thinking about, all right, as a user to solve this problem, what do I want? What is the goal? What, what is what as a user, I want X, Y, Z to satisfy, to fix that problem. And we'll step through a, a bunch of list of I wants. And it sounds a lot like user stories, right? That's what you're getting at is like trying to kind of understand the goals of what you're trying to accomplish with this feature. And when you do that with everybody in a room, you're not only like outlining all of these goals that you can eventually use on, on stories, but you're getting a shared context between all of these stakeholders around what the problem is and what the goals are so that everyone walks away understanding the complete context around what, what you're going to build. So that's the point when I go away with this as a designer, start working on mock-ups and ideas and then when we bring it that back to the team, we're talking about these are the goals and, and we might not like hit every single one that we identified in the meeting, but we'll prioritize like the most important ones and point to like here in the design is where that's reflected. And then you're, you're having much better discussions at that design review because everyone already has that context. And then once you, you break that out and folks are going off to engineer that, like I can go move on to the next feature and get that queued up for folks while they're working on the first piece. But I can trust that my tech leads and everyone has really good idea around what it is that we're building. And when I skip that step, every time I've ever skipped that step, you suffer at the other end. Like you, you end up spending more time communicating that why to folks because things weren't right or there's confusion or folks don't know what they're building. And it's always a problem. So it's never worth it to skip that step. It's really important. What's up, party people? Are you ready for Core Web Vitals? Well, our friends at Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website. That's exactly why Raygun has made them into their real-time user monitoring tools. Now you can see how your Core Web Vitals scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters most to you and your team. 
And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provide so you can take action quickly, identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance level, diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Learn more at raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start at eight bucks a month. Again, raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. So Liana, that was fascinating. That was a really good breakdown of like how to do product and how to do product well. I think that the 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 why reasoning that you and Cable were kind of ripping off of was was really cool. I'm really curious to know like how does the why help you? I think not just um, in the way that you explain a product, but I'm curious, like, does your intersectionality affect the why? Like, like, I feel like you're a theater person, you're an engineer, there's so many things like your intersectionality, does that help you tell a better story to engineers? Yeah, I mean, I think so. Certainly my software background helps me communicate with engineers more effectively, but I, I did want to talk about my, my theater background and how that helps because it absolutely has helped me in my career, both as a software engineer and as a product manager, because I mean, obviously I'm someone who can speak while I enjoy speaking in front of large groups. I enjoy singing in front of large groups. So I, I have no fear in front of chatting with folks. And that is kind of what led me from becoming, making that step from engineering to product management. So definitely the oral communication skills were important, but also like the problem solving that has to happen, like I'm being kind of quick on your feet. I will not say I'm the quickest person on my feet, but when there, a problem arises, you have to deal with it in the moment and be very present. I was just telling the story actually to my son, which is, is kind of funny. I think we're all familiar with West Side Story. The movie is kind of another remake of the movie is coming out. Um, yeah. I was in a production where if you're familiar with the story, Chino comes out with a gun and kills Tony and Maria like has a whole monologue about the gun. And there was one night where a prop person put the gun away. Chino could not find the gun. A couple of things he could have possibly have done in that moment, but he was panicking and he grabbed the knife from act one and stabbed Tony. So <laughs> Maria's left with the knife going, every single line I have after this is about shooting people. <laughs> what do I do? So she had to think on her feet and we all had to just kind of run with it and be present. And I was never more present than I was in that moment because like, what is she going to do? But yeah, it was all like, I think the lines are, how many bullets are left in this gun, Chino? Enough for you, enough for you. So she's like, how many people can I stab, Tony? <laughs> yeah, it was just ridiculous. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment in theater where everybody was just like, why did you change the ending? But I think that that ability to think on your feet and be willing to roll with the punches and be flexible is just so important in life and in your job and and also being willing to laugh about it. Things go wrong. And what are you going to do about it? I think your your reaction in those moments are, are super important. There's some fundamental lessons there, too. So I, I've done a nowhere near to the level that you have, but I've done a fair amount of improv theater and things around that. And some of the lessons around, essentially everything is about relationships. And I spe think especially engineers tend to fix that on the what, on the concrete objects and the things that we are building. 
but the way that the work gets done is about the relationships and the interactions and who's talking to whom and how are you co-defining this thing and working in theater and the arts like that teaches that like nothing that I've ever seen. Absolutely. I love that idea of co-defining. That's how I enjoy working with anyone is a very collaborative environment because that's how you get the best stuff. And when you're working in an environment of trust and everyone's working together, and that's not to say that we're not passionate and don't have opinions and and voices might not be raised, but it's all in service of what you're building together and you can all be proud of it. And I just, that's what makes me love building software. It's, it's almost like you you knew what I wanted to talk about next, Liana, because you kind of hit on this really important topic of trust, right? So I'm, I'm really curious about like, what makes for a good product manager? I mean, and I, and I can, you know, and I'm not saying this because Liana is here and Liana is my friend, but really, Liana, you are one of the best product managers I've ever worked with. Aww. You're really well organized. You're able to like relay information. You never... I would say you almost like you give us almost too much information in the sense that like there's never a stone you leave unturned, which I love, you know, because everything you put together is always going to be a good resource while the project is going on. And I feel like you're incredible at that. And so I'm curious, like what makes for a good product manager? And also it seems like, you know, your theater background, your engineering background, I think have helped you build empathy in different ways as well. So I'm just curious, what's the secret sauce to like a good PM? Yeah, I think, I mean, when I think back to our relationship and some of the things that we worked on, Amel, it really was about me putting myself in the shoes of the engineer. Like, what would I need to know if I were building this? And what would I want to know? So that really helps a lot. The types of questions, like if I were looking, staring at a blank screen, what kind of questions would I have? So that's how I start. And then definitely am someone who is documenting the heck out of everything. And I think we, we use Confluence at my job right now. I know people have a love-hate with that tool. I really actually enjoy using any tool where I can just organize my thoughts because if I can put that down on paper, I'm not really great thinking on my feet when I speak, but I certainly can write a good damn paper. That's where I think I get it's helpful to me to put my thoughts down and organize them just for my own self. And then you've got a document that you can share around with other other folks. So I think definitely having starting to collect materials that are helpful is an important part of being a PM. Like a one source of truth. Yeah. Well, I I mean, those things get out of date so quickly and whatnot. But in the moment, yeah, I mean, I've written so many pieces of collateral. It's ridiculous. And and they're gone in the ethers. It would be cool to look back on my life when I'm 90 to go like, look at uh, how many pieces did I like... uh, you know, one pagers did I write over my lifetime? It's ridiculous. But at the time, it helps me collect my thoughts and communicate them out to other folks. And I love the collaborative nature of some of these tools now that we didn't have like 10, 20 years ago. It's great, like where you can folks making comments and changes and you just kind of work async on a document and become come into like a, a, a shared vision, a shared communication around what, what it is that you're doing. I think I went off track of your question there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you, no, you, no, you. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think like having like resource materials, having a single source of truth, even though it might get irrelevant later. But I think having something you can point people to at any given time is like, here, look at this. Like, that's very helpful, I find. Um, and so like, what are some of your biggest challenges? I'd say, you know, what's really hard about being a PM, um, you know, on a day-to-day basis, weekly basis, month basis? I'm sure that changes, but I'm curious, like, what's hard? 
Actually, before we go there, can I hijack slightly and go a little deeper on one of the things? Oh, hijack away, K-Ball? Well, so some of the stuff you were talking about got me thinking about this sort of core challenge, I think, of being a PM and working well. So especially highlighted, I think we were talking earlier about how much of a planner you are. And I think a lot of what product managers end up doing is planning and documenting and pulling everything together. But I think one of the the really interesting challenges there, and I say this is someone who is not a good planner, is how do you do that planning and coalescing while still leaving room for co-creation mm. in the moment, right? So we're going down this, we've created all these things, we have this big plan, and suddenly, for example, a tech lead says, hey, if we do this piece of work that you've already highlighted here, that actually opens up this whole additional set of things that we could do. How do you kind of manage the, the divergent pieces while still trying to converge back to a coherent source of truth and plan? That's a fantastic question, right? It's the difference between waterfall and agile. I feel like it's also a polite way of saying, like, how do you uh, herd the nerds back to the right direction when they're like going a hundred <laughs> different ways? <laughs> yes and no, right? Because I think that sometimes those diversions or those new possibilities, that's where the magic ends up being. Certainly, certainly. In software, we have rituals, right? We have the daily stand-up, we have uh, grooming sessions, retros, and that's a process, right? Having a strong product process is where the rigidity is, but it allows for the creativity outside of that. So for example, that story time meeting is super important. That's that moment where we get to do that kind of brainstorming and just let ourselves go wild, right? With all kinds of our different ideas, what might the, the user want and start to really be creative. And then we go away and I go with my designer and then we start to kind of confine that a little bit more. And I had a, one of my favorite designers that I ever worked with, she would call her design, uh, her dream Barbie design would be, she would take the feature and like build out this, not just the feature, but how should this entire section of the application look and feel? And what, how, what, if I had unlimited time and resources and abilities, what could I build? And that's what we would start with. I'm like, okay, we've got all this magic. And then we would bring that to the tech lead and go, okay, but we've got a month to build this. So, you know, what does that look like? If you were only given a month, what pieces of this are the most important pieces for us to tease out of it? And so that's, it's kind of a push and pull. It's like allowing people to be creative and, and expand out, but then reining them back in again and, and out and in. So from, from an engineering standpoint, like I don't, I will carve out pieces of the dream Barbie design, like, and we'll focus on that piece, but then we'll, we'll go into grooming and like talk about the different ways you might architect that and what might it look like and, and have those broader conversations that start to lead to, well, gosh, you know, we, we could architect this thing and I need to refactor that and all of those, and which are really important, necessary conversations. And then we come back to the time box. It's like, okay, given these are things that we want to do and let's keep those in mind and I'll find places to archive like those ideas so that we don't let go of them. But like, okay, now in the time box, what can we reasonably achieve given this broader vision? But if you don't have that broader vision and you're only focused on the small thing, you never get a chance to innovate or be creative and you're never building, like you're building the okay thing, but not the awesome thing. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think like for me, I can tell you that as an engineer, I always want as much context as possible, right? So the the dream Barbie design is like what I want to know. I'm like, I want to know where are we trying to go now, but I also want to know where would we like to be next year? Because I think for me, when you're in the code and you're making those like micro decisions, you can design with tomorrow in mind, right? So you don't have to build this rigid system where you're coding everything to be statically right. statically for today. Like, how do I make this an open design that's extensible? And I think having that context is really important. And like, and that comes from, again, working with a good product manager that like is able to share like, hey, here's where we need to build today because of constraints. And again, constraints are super important and healthy, but like, here's what you're gonna hopefully be building tomorrow. And so don't make the code that you're building today don't make it difficult to get to the next place tomorrow, right? <laughs> so, To Liana's point, be agile about it too. Imagine you're going to revisit. Because like, I mean, one of my favorite things about software is when I build a piece of software and people start using it and it uncovers the fact that it's incomplete, right? Our vision may have been complete in and itself. We built this thing. But when people get their hands on it, they start to get excited and they say, oh, wait, what if we could do this? Can I do this with it? Can I do this with it? Can we make it do this? Like that is successful software, software that the act of using it is driving new ideas for how to improve it. But that's like changing your Barbie house and saying, okay, like my Barbie house is beautiful, but it needs a turret over here now that I've, I've played with this part of it, right? Like how do we keep moving and iterating on that vision? That's why you should never actually build the dream Barbie house, honestly. You should have the dream in your head, but the dream is going to morph and change over time as you build different pieces. So yeah, eventually there could be a turret and a moat. <laughs> and a moat. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm really liking this concept of like constraints, but leaving room for magic, but then also not leaving too much room. There's so many different factors here that it seems like this is like baking or something. Like we're make, trying to make the perfect cookie or something, or like we're trying to make a meringue, like, you know, got to get all the, the balance of the science correct. <laughs> but it really is. It, it, I mean, it's it's organic, right? We're, we're creating a right, garden or right. something. We're growing things. Some things will go as we plan them and some things will develop turrets. Right, yeah. And this isn't dreamy. I mean, this is how you can build software. This is what I did at the MBTA. We we knew that at the time when I joined that the, the website had been really just needed a lot of help. It hadn't been revisited in, in a lot of areas. We, we really needed to touch every single area of it. So there was so much to do. It was just like, oh, there's so much, so much. Where do you even start, right? But after creating like a roadmap and time boxing things, it's like we don't have to get it 100% or fix, make everything perfect all at once. Let's just get like the best 80% out of it. Or just how far, given that time box, is, I'm doing this with my hands, make a little square. With that time box, how far could we get? And if we solve enough of the problem that we were trying to correct, let's move on to the next thing that's on fire and the next thing. And so you're just, you're doing what you can given the constraints that you have, but keeping this dream Barbie vision in your head and moving along and you'll be surprised at the end of a year or even less than that. Like when you look back, I love doing retros. I'm like, what did you do over the last year? Cause you'd be, you'd be shocked. Like, I'm always shocked at like, how much were we able to accomplish in that last year just by, you know, being focused and keeping this vision in our heads and trotting along. And certainly it's a painting that is never complete, but it's a pretty damn fine painting by the end of the, of the year. And certainly there's more that you're always gonna wanna do, but as long as you're pretty methodical and careful about solving as much of the problem as you can, given what you have, it's amazing what you can accomplish.
This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fastly. They're running an awesome promo on Compute at Edge. They're inviting our entire listener base to move latency-sensitive workloads to the edge with Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. This is a limited time offer, so head to Fastly.com slash podcast as soon as you can to check it out and get all the details. Here's the TLDR. Fastly's edge cloud network and modern approach to serverless computing allows you to deploy and run complex logic at the edge with unparalleled security and blazing fast computational speed. Scale instantly and globally, reduce origin load, get real-time observability, and get seamless integration with your existing tech stack. Head to fastly.com slash podcast to get compute at edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. Once again, fastly.com slash podcast. Liana, that was pretty uh, magical, if I say so myself. I think this whole concept of like building in iterative chunks and never being done is like really the core thesis of software development. And I'm really curious, like how you deal with that, like never being perfect, never being done, right? Like software is this living, breathing thing and it's never, never, ever done, ever done, right? There's always another unit test you could write. There's always another thing that you could do, another language that you could translate and add to your website, right? There's so many things. And so how do you deal with that backlog management, but also like, how do you deal with focus as well, right? Because backlog management is this focus exercise, right? And so how do you figure out what the most important thing that you need to work on next is. And how do you balance that with like tech debt and all these other competing priorities? So I'm curious. Yeah, great questions. I mean, it's not an easy thing to keep space in your plan for refactoring. It's not an easy sell to the business, but it's definitely having come from the engineering background. It's something that I always try to make space for and make room for. I liken it to like a chef in a kitchen, right? If you're cooking and you leave all the pots and pans around, like eventually you won't have any pots and pans left and it's all dirty and it's a big old mess and you're going to have to clean it up at some point, right? And, and that's appropriate when you're trying to whip up something quickly, like a prototype to see, you know, is anyone even going to eat this cake? But at the end of the day, at some point, you've got to clean up after yourself. And if you want to have some code that you're going to maintain or keep over time, if you are cleaning as you go along, it's just an easier and a better time for everyone. I was a Girl Scout back in the day. So it was always leave the place better than you found it. It was one of our mottos. So that's and when you're touching a piece of code, that's when you refactor it. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I, an analogy I like to use is like brushing your teeth every day versus like once a month, you know, big difference. Like once a month for like <laughs> an hour is not the same as like every day for two minutes, right? Like, so it's so important to leave space for product managers to keep in mind that they need to make space for refactoring. And one thing I like to do, which is always a hard sell, but I will sell it no matter what, is that December should never be a month where you're shipping features. Like, I just don't believe that. We're all in holiday mode. Folks are like focused on other things. It is the perfect month to be thinking about a refactor palooza. 
Like, let's just take all of the things that have been annoying us all year or the backlog that has accrued over time and just kill it throughout the month of December. And inevitably, there's always some small feature or some need that the business needs at the end of the year. Always, always. But I try to like slim it down or keep it as small as possible so that we're making space for that. But I don't just wait until December. Honestly, if we finish a feature early or we get to a good stopping place in our time box and there's room left for refactoring, I let folks do that. But when we're building our estimates or trying to figure out what we're going to accomplish in the time box, we're always having a conversation of, okay, what areas of the code are we touching and how can we refactor that and how can we fit that in as part of what we're doing? Because that is part of building a new feature is fixing what was left behind and making it better. Like that is part of that back-end cleanup is part of building the front-end feature. Question related to that. So there's kind of a couple fundamental layers that one could take that, right? There's, so there's this ongoing maintenance, refactoring. This thing didn't get quite done or didn't get quite cleaned up or we were in a rush. And those, like, I think leaving some space between projects, we're doing, like, we're planning an infrastructure week, that type of thing. Uh, that's a great way to deal with that is just leaving space, leaving breath when you finish early, like if that ever happens in engineering, then you have time. <laughs> but the question I have for you is how you think about prioritizing sort of larger scale changes, right? An issue has come up that keeps something similar, keeps happening over and over again, and it's starting to look like actually our under infrastructure under this feature is not good enough, or we need to pull in or create a new system to handle a whole class of problems. It's not going to be feature-facing. It's not something that's actually going to deliver immediate business value, at least in a way that the business is used to thinking about it. But it's going to take, let's say, a solid month, a full project of this engineering team, or it's going to take some other time. How do you think about prioritizing those types of projects relative to business features? Yeah, I mean, you hit on the answer partially there in the in the question. It's that you need to find what the business value is of that work. Because if there is no value to the business, there isn't a point in doing it. So what is, why is it valuable to do refactoring work? Why is it valuable to build out the infrastructure in a, in a better way or in a new way? And what value is that going to bring? How much development speed comes out of that? How much money are you saving because now you're not paying for third-party services? Like Things like that. We did a, a, some work at MBTA where we had been using Google Maps and they're incredibly expensive. And we wanted to swap to using something that was open source, that was free, but it was a big project that was spanning a large amount of time. It was an easy sell because I'm like, hey, I'm gonna save you $10,000. Can you give me some time to do that? I'm like, sure. When you can add the the financial value there or like the the benefit to the eventually to the user and and make that apparent that makes selling those projects easy and i think it's easy to sell too on refactor me i think the business never says no please don't refactor and make code beautiful it's not, it's just they just don't understand the value of why that's important so i like to work for organizations that do value that and understand why that's important certainly there is a balance between everything being perfect and beautiful in code and giving having no value to the user, right? You've got to just balance those things. But that's why they say like PMing is kind of like juggling, right? You've got to kind of juggle all of these different priorities and concerns at the same time. But that's what makes it fun. 
Yeah, I mean, PMing is like juggling knives, I would say, while being in the air and moving 100 <laughs> miles an hour, like, you know, up and down. It's a hard job. Um, you're like at the tip of the spear. Wait, weren't we going to just start selling people on moving into this? And now you're saying I'm Oh, catching yeah, yeah, no, yeah, and- yeah. Sorry, yes. No, PMing is great. Yeah, it's while juggling flowers and sitting in a bed of roses, getting your feet massaged. <laughs> no, actually, I, I do want to say, though, y'all, this point that you're, you're making about like tech debt refactoring, you need to kind of tie it to the business value, right? It's like, how does this improve the business value? How does this help our customers? I'm totally with you, but I I don't think it's necessarily an organizational thing though, because yes, organizations that I think are maybe more engineering oriented and less business oriented will understand the value of tech debt. They will understand the value of testing. They'll understand the value of software quality and being able to obviously ship uh, without breaking things, right? I think it's a marketing problem too. And I think the marketing problem is actually on the engineering side because I think so many engineers will say, yeah, I need to I need to refactor this thing and do da 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 because this code is bad. But like what they should really be saying is like, hey, I need to refactor this because the, you know, this is slowing down every single release of ours, which means that our customers are, have to wait this much longer to get, get a feature. So I think the framing is on us as engineers to make sure that we understand how this ties into business value. And quite frankly, like if you can't explain that, then should you be working on it at all? Especially at like at work is my question, right? So if you can't find the business value, many engineers are bad storytellers. Yeah, but the good ones maybe should go into product management. Seems like that's their going trend, you know, gay ball. But those are the questions that I ask an engineer when they want to refactor something. Like, oh, this thing is bugging me. Well, why yeah. is it bugging you? Oh, because I can't do X Y Z. Well, you know, great. Like, let's expand on that. Or if they want to work on something, like this is such really cool and it'd be really cool. Great. Like, why is that? What kind of value would that bring? Like, if you were me and you had to tell the CEO that you were going to spend, you know, your month working on this, what should I tell them? And usually even just asking that question, lots of times folks just don't even think about that. Like, oh, yeah, if I were to talk to someone about why I'm building this, you know, and then then they tell me fine, like, and I can put that into a story to sell. Yeah. Well, I mean, what's funny about that is like, I think there's the exercise of the five whys as a product manager. I'm sure you're very familiar with it, right? But if you just can't kind of ask why five times, like for every answer, okay, I need to do this. Okay, why? Because I need to do this. Okay, why? Like usually by the fifth why, the the theory is sometimes before that, like Liana said, she'll get to it before that. But sometimes by the fifth why, you kind of really get to the core of the problem, right? And I feel like that is so much of product management is really kind of sussing out like, why is this really broken? And I can share some experiences like of product managers I've worked with. Like I run to my product manager and I'm like, we need to do this, 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 and this, and da, 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 da. And they get to me to kind of understand why we can't do it now just by asking me why, 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 right? Like, and reminding me like, like it's this amazing ability of like, knowing what the most important thing to do is and understanding like how does this actually help us with our current objectives right because there's lots of things you can do that's important especially at a startup but especially in a startup environment though you need to find like what's the right five things i should be doing right now right because it's not like what you should be doing it's like what's the right yeah you're talking about prioritization yeah you know and that's tough it's a really tough thing it's not easy to find the right thing to do at any given moment and i think exercises like that maybe help you refine it they say that that a product manager's job is to say no and protect the team. I try not to ever say no. I don't say no. I I ask the whys, like, why is this important? And are you willing to sacrifice A for B? Like, hey, we have a plan. And how important is this to you? 
and to the business and what value is it bringing and is it more valuable than what we're working on right now? And sometimes the answer is yes. We got to drop everything and do that thing because it would be just so beneficial to the company to do that. But more often than not, it's like, oh, well, you know what? We have that planned and we're going to put that in the backlog and we're going to do that later because that's where it fits. But that's that constant revising and revisiting of the roadmap is what being agile is about, right? Like you learn things over time, you learn what's important over time, and that's how you prioritize things. So if one of our listeners is thinking, listening to this and thinking, huh, well, that sounds kind of interesting. Like, how do you know if you should investigate being a product manager? Say you're an engineer, maybe you've been working in engineering five years, three years. I mean, let's face it, most folks haven't been in the industry that long yet. Like, how do you know, hey, I should actually go and, and think about becoming a product manager? Well, so I, I made a list of, you know, you're a PM if, and a bunch of uh, statements. That said, though, before I launch into that, I will say that if you're a software engineer, stay in software engineering is for as long as you can because that experience <laughs> is invaluable. This is counter to the advice I thought we'd be getting, Liana. <laughs> I mean, before I made the transition, I'd been doing software for nearly 20 years and I have a lot of experience and stories that I can draw back on for my product management. But not that you should wait 20 years to become a product manager, but certainly all of that experience is really helpful. And the more engineering experience you have, the more helpful it is. But let's say you've been in in the field for a number of years and you're looking for your next challenge, right? So if you're the type of person who likes to know what features are on the roadmap, you might be a product manager. If you're questioning why the new feature is gonna be useful, that's a clue. If you like to understand the problem that a feature is trying to solve, and if you like to be involved in defining that the solutions, if you care about the quality of the customer experience as well as the quality of the code, you might be a product manager. If you love measuring success with quantifiable analytics and you don't mind talking with users and other stakeholders, if you make sure the conversations that get alignment across teams happen, you're the glow and you might be a product manager. And if you're comfortable with the 80-20 rule and can solve for the most common use cases and balance the trade-offs and edge cases, if you have a calm and upbeat demeanor, even when chaos swirls around you, you might be a product manager. Okay, but say I said yes to all of those things and I'm not a product manager. Like (laughs) asking for a friend here, what might I know that would say I shouldn't be a product manager? Well, do you want to do it? I mean, if you don't, right? <laughs> like, I'm hiring. <laughs> that, like, it's like the, the hottest new job, I guess, in, in, in Silicon Valley is to become PM. I'm like, really? I mean, I don't know. Actually, you know what's so funny? I, I, I have this in my show notes, but like apparently the hottest new job at business school at like people getting an MBA is product manager. They're actually less and less interested in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. these days. And they're more like, how do I be a PM at Facebook? How do I be a PM at Google? Which is interesting, like, you know, that these business grads are like more interested in becoming product managers than, you know, starting a business. Like, actually, that makes sense to me. I mean, if you're coming from from a business background, that makes sense to me. If you're coming from an engineering software background, it makes a little less sense to me because, I mean, honestly, I, I miss programming. I miss it a lot. It was just really fun. And I don't get to do as much of it, any of it, I still have my GitHub account and will peek into people's PRs and sometimes make a comment, which is usually just a thumbs up these days. But yeah, I, I do miss it. And I, I think um, if you're a software engineer who just really 
enjoys making software and talking to different areas of business and pulling people together, you find that you're making less and less code and you don't mind, then that might be the a clue, right? That you're okay with making the switch over. Yeah, it makes sense actually, because the there's a big overlap also between senior engineers and product managers. And I think K-Ball, uh, we were discussing this with K-Ball earlier, but basically there's you know, we kind of almost have to define the boundaries of like, when is it a product manager's role versus a senior engineering, like, per, you know, person on the team's role, right? So there's this kind of little bit of a gray area Venn diagram. Yeah, when I was brought into product management, the product managers are incredibly technical and very deeply embedded in the teams. And yet when I moved on from that role to other companies, the reverse was true. The expectation was on the tech lead to take on a lot of that product owner, project management piece of it. So much so that I wasn't expected to write tickets or even attend standups, which I think is crazy. Like I need to know what's happening and, and what's going on and, and keeping, I think the only way to keep things on the rails is to understand what people are building and answer questions at stand-up, like, I just can't imagine not, not showing up for that. But it, it really depends on the organization and, and also the people involved. Like, there are some tech leads that I can absolutely trust with that, and I can walk away and go focus on more strategic stuff. It just really, it really depends on the situation. But who should do what is very cultural around ownership and where those lines are drawn. People come to product management from a variety of fields, right? I've seen your background, right? Folks come from engineering. I've seen PMs who come from a design background. We were just talking about PMs coming from a business background. And actually one of the PMs I work with now who's phenomenal is coming from like a behavioral science Ooh, background. fancy. So I'm kind of curious what you see as like, one, the advantages of coming from an engineering background because many of our audience are engineers, but also maybe what are the blind spots or challenges you might have coming into product management from a, an engineering background and how would you go about remedying them? Absolutely. Like coming from an engineering standpoint, I, I was able to hit the ground running on so many things in product management. It was great. And a lot of engineers do make that switch because I understand how to break apart a story, how to communicate to engineers and help them build the right thing. Like that's awesome. But where my blind spots are, and I've had to learn this over time and it's been difficult, is that business side, right? I don't have an MBA don't really want to get an MBA. It's okay. You, you don't, this is a safe space. I don't think anybody else, uh, like li high likelihood that nobody <laughs> listening to this, I mean, very few people. I don't want to insult anyone who has an MBA. Actually, if you are an engineer with an MBA, like that is a fantastic resume builder, just a, a fantastic thing to have. Yeah, I might be the only other person on this call that wants an MBA. Actually, I don't want a real MBA. I want an SDM. But anyway, <laughs> I'll put a link in the show notes to the program that I want to join. <laughs> There's actually one you can get now that there's MBAs you can get that are software management focused that are that I might be interested in, actually. But the skills that you're, you're trying to flex there are understanding your industry, understanding like, can you figure out how much do you charge for your product? How do you figure out when uh, what kind of team that you need, which and how do you pay for that team? Like how much is that team gonna cost? How much is a project gonna cost? And how many people do you need? And how much is all that gonna cost? Like a lot of that, that folks. And then there's the marketing side. So there's the business side, but then there's the marketing. Like, okay, what? how do you build a go-to-market? How do you let people know about this piece of software that you've built and train your commercial teams, your operation teams, your users, how to use this feature? 
all of that is kind of more like salesy marketing stuff that it's been very difficult for me to pick that up over time just because that's just not where my my brain space is. So I'm constantly like trying to challenge myself to be thinking in those terms because it just doesn't come natural to me. Yeah, I can totally see how that is a huge mental shift. And quite frankly, it's like the deterrent for me when it comes to product, like really, I'm like, I don't enjoy making slides. I don't enjoy having to constantly pitch and I don't enjoy writing oodles of documentation, which is a key thing that you need to do as a product manager, because otherwise... As a tech lead too, though, don't you think? Like yeah. tech leads need to write architectural documents, right? Let's just put it this way. It's the least favorite. It's the least, I guess, the thing that I like the least about my job is like having to... I would much rather like, can I just like put this into an audio doc and then like somebody else like type it up for me? <laughs> it's a hard job. I totally hear you, ML. I love a lot of things about product. I love collaborating with product folks, and I'm not enough of a planner or an organizer to be an excellent product manager. I need I partner really well with those folks, but like, yeah, that is. Yeah, that's the space that I'm in. There's a lot. Yeah, I'm a really good partner, I think, and I think trust is important because you know you, you are a really good partner. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. You know, but like, you know, you have to be able to lean on each other and trust each other and understand like when it's that other person's job and when it's your job and you know. And so that's like the relationship I think between the tech lead and the and the PM. So Liana, like this has been a really really insightful and a really interesting discussion. I wanted to say thank you so much for all of the insights and I think we have a Easter egg surprise which I'm not sure where we're going to insert it, but let's just put it this way. Liana is a singer. We have a history of uh, incorporating singing in our podcast, though most of us are not nearly as talented as I think Liana mm-hmm. is. <laughs> well, I, I told you that I like mashups, so it's always been important to me to like bring all my passions together. So I tend to sing about tech issues or like technical things or just goofy technical things. So that's... I'll leave it at that. Yeah, exactly. And she, you know, let's just say maybe the um, surprise Easter egg is something about Unix. Unix, I know it. And I'll leave it at that. And a very old and tired meme. <laughs> An old and tired <laughs> meme. Yes, that too. Ooh, I'm excited. I haven't seen yeah. this. Uh, so where can folks connect with you on the internet? And where can folks find you? I'm L. Lakey on Twitter and Liana.org. I got that back in 1995. Yeah, <laughs> this is where I'm starting to realize, like, like Liana is like an Eternal. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Eternals. Like, this is like a new Marvel spinoff, but there are these people who live forever and they all look like they're 33. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, we'll see how long I can pull that yeah. off. <laughs> anyway, so Liana, thank you again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. And we hope to have you back on the show in the future. And everyone, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Take care. That is our show. Thanks for listening. If this is your first time, subscribe now at jsparty.fm or just search for JS Party in your favorite podcast app. We're in there. And if you're enjoying the pod, do me a favor and tell a friend to check it out. Hey, you might just help them find their new favorite podcast. How cool would that be? JS Party is produced by me, Jared Santo, with music by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Special thanks to our longtime partners, Fastly, Linode, and Lon Sharkly. That's all for this week. We'll talk to you again next time.
But I don't want to end my young life as dinosaur food. Now I know I can access the system and bring things online. Uh, uh, uh. I said, baby, I'll reboot the mainframe and all will be fine. Oh, yeah, now it's Unix, I know.